forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. Public Intellectual is a labor of love performed by myself and my lovely producers. And if you would like to support us in this endeavor, you can go to patreon.com slash public intellectual and you'll get bonus materials, our undying gratitude, and the knowledge that you helped this vulgar, nasty little podcast continue into the future. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. Does it matter what we watch and read? Is it possible for a film to be just entertainment? Or are the stories that our mass media tells us shaping how we see the world? I keep thinking about this line in the most most recent Shlomo Sand book, The End of the French Intellectual. Books don't change the world, but when the world changes, it looks for another book. But now that taste has replaced character, and now that we define ourselves by the shows we watch, the movies we like, the books we read, and now that we use that information to introduce ourselves to people and believe that it actually reveals something about ourselves, maybe the stories in our entertainment are having an effect on us that we don't quite understand. Peter Biskind has been covering this territory for a while, ever since his very good book, Seeing is Believing, which is about Hollywood's nostalgia machine for the 1950s and how those films and TV shows shaped the way so many have idealized that decade. And now he has published The Sky is Falling, how vampires, zombies, androids, and superheroes made America great for extremism, which looks at our current love of disaster and revenge and what that reveals about the current American psyche. I wanted to start off by talking about this premise that you have in the book, which is that culture influences politics, which is um, kind of not necessarily a popular idea, or it, if I, I find that it's um, not taken seriously as, as an idea that we can sort of point to um, what's popular in media and in entertainment as being sort of um, an influence on how people uh, vote or behave in the world. You sort of immediately go into this uh, video games cause um, mass shootings place, I think. Um, but that y- you do seem to believe this in the book that um, entertainment influences the political behavior of its viewers. Is that correct? Uh, yes, but I don't. I don't immediately go into video games cause mass shootings area. No, I mean, when you say that, people assume that's what you're saying, I think, at least. Oh, yeah. oh, oh. Well, I don't, I mean, I don't speculate on how people would take it. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, a, you know, you're right. I mean, it's a controversial subject and, uh, and it's probably a minority position because as I say in the book, uh, culture is always ignored as a positive agent in social change. But I think, you know, and I, I fudge it a little bit, to be perfectly honest. I mean, 
it's a chicken, it's a chicken and egg situation. You know, it's very difficult to untangle culture from social change. I mean, you could certainly point to instances where it seems to be generally accepted that cultural um, artifacts did have a important impact on social change. You know, and I use the example in the book of Uncle Tom's Cabin in the Civil War. And it's a famous example in terms of movies of uh, Birth of a Nation uh, re, uh, uh, reviving the uh, Ku Klux Klan in 1915. And, you know, there are other kinds of, you know, you can point to other examples of that. I mean, and then, you know, predictively, the weird example of a Manchurian candidate, which came out in the early 60s, predicting the um, involvement, the impact of Russia on our um, uh, electoral process. But, but if, if you, you know, in the book I say it, it, it incites or enhances, and it's probably more safer to say that it enhances, I mean, I would certainly be on safer ground to say it enhances social change. And it's not merely reflective. It's kind of an echo chamber effect. And uh, so that's how I would, uh, I think, answer that question. I mean, I think there are examples in which it, it does provoke social change. And I'm certain that, you know, I mean, the whole argument in this book is that if you see, you know, if you see hundreds of movies and TV shows uh, featuring vigilante violence, you sort of take it for granted. So when... Trump comes along and completely discards the rule of law, it's not so shocking. I mean, for a lot of people, it is for some, obviously. But, um, but I think you could certainly say that popular culture has helped pave the way for that. Yeah, and um, Clint Eastwood, I kept thinking about Clint Eastwood when I was reading this because I've, uh, I've read your other books as well. Um, and he seems this kind of figure that he didn't seem to originate exactly this vigilante figure, but certainly he popularized um, this, you know, like with the Dirty Harry movies, the sort of one cop against a mad world um, and this the um, romanticizing this idea of um, you know, shooting first, asking questions later, um, all the way up into sort of um, contemporary work that he's doing, like with American Sniper, um, which sort of glorifies the same sort of uh, militaristic impulse and um, basing it off of a memoir that has been completely discredited and yet no one cares that the that the whole book was fake um and and so going back to, to this idea of our culture we don't care about what's true anymore um so can you talk about sort of since you've been writing about Clint Eastwood for such a long time like how you've seen his um his position evolve uh, I don't know. Well, as you just pointed out, I don't know that it's evolved that much. <laughs> you know, I did, you know, he's, he's, you know, like a lot of these people, it's also interesting that he's a really nice guy, or at least he behaves that way to journalists, because I had occasion to uh, interview him a number of years ago when he actually said that thing to me, which I quote in the book, which is that when he was, uh, um, when he was finishing um, the outlaw Jersey Wales, his editor came to him and said, um, you know, Clint, you shot that guy in the back. And, you know, and I asked, uh, you know, I asked Eastwood about the so-called code of the West and 
where shooting people in the back is uh, uh, prohibited and forbidden. I asked him about that, and he had no qualms about saying, I shoot people in the back all the time, because if you wait for them to turn around, they're going to shoot you. Or I draw first all the time, all the, you know, because if you don't, you're going to get killed. And, you know, there's a lot of truth to that. But uh, he certainly made no bones about it. And, you know, I also use the example of this actually wonderful Western, uh, The Unforgiven, that was released in 92, I believe, you know, where he, um, you know, which is a revenge Western, where he revenges himself on a sheriff played by Gene Hackman for killing one of his good friends. And after after that, he shoots Gene Hackman uh, in a bar, he turns to all the bystanders who witnessed the shooting and said, you know, if any of you um, nail me for this, I'm going to come after you. I'm going to kill your wife and your children and burn your house down. And, uh, you know, and that's kind of an extreme, needless to say, sort of extreme statement, which he felt comfortable with saying because his you know, persona was so strong, his fans were so loyal that they would basically swallow anything he said. And I say in the book that it made it easier for Trump to say he could stand in the middle of Times Square or Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and still he wouldn't lose any votes. So I'm not sure that, uh, and you, you know, cite the sniper film, American Sniper. I'm not sure, sure his position has evolved all that much. But, you know, I think he was enormously important in changing the, the mores of the Western hero and Westerns were a phenomenally dominant uh, genre in American film for decades and decades from the very beginning, from the silent period up through the 50s and it sort of petered out in the 60s. But um, Eastwood had a, a key influence. And then he was followed. You know, if you get into revenge films, he was followed by, in other genres. He was followed by Charles Bronson and Mel Gibson, and you know now revenge is de uh, rigueur. I mean, nobody thinks twice about it. And again, you know, you can see many instances of Trump acting vengefully against his critics and people, and even former former friends um, shooting them in the back, figuratively speaking. Yeah, the revenge film does seem really, really dominant um, in our film culture right now, it seems to be sort of um, one of the most present storylines. Um, you know, the, so this movie just came out, but, you know, just seeing the trailer for Peppermint um, with the white suburban mom taking on the hordes of Mexican gangsters um, re because her son was somehow assassinated by a, a drug cartel, which doesn't make any sense, but it's a very, very Trumpian narrative. I mean, it's maybe the most sort of ob uh, obviously um, Trump era film that I've, uh, that I've seen. Well, I haven't seen it, so can't comment on it, but I'm just, you know, from your description, I'm sure it sounds, certainly sounds like it. <laughs> Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the Christopher Nolan films, because to me, this is a directive that is um, kind of universally acclaimed, but his politics seem so obviously right wing. Um, you talk about Dunkirk in a in a um, an interesting way um, that I hadn't thought about before, about the sort of um, the context of um 
the Nazis and World War II sort of being completely erased from the film, which I hadn't um, paid attention to. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, the Dunkirk film and uh, your take on it. Well, this is not entirely original with me because uh, other people have mentioned this as well. But it's easy to read the film as, a, as an apology for Brexit because, uh, you know, and, and British going aloneism because, you know, the film flatters, and, you know, and there's certainly an element of truth in it. The film flatters the English for being the sort of last bastion against the Germans, except it never mentions the Germans until the very, you know, deep into the film. And the, I, the, uh, at the beginning of the film, there are, I believe, four subtitles which refer to the Nazis as the enemy. And uh, it started me thinking about other of Nolan's films, particularly Interstellar, which has all kinds of interesting implications as far as global warming is concerned and uh, a sort of Ayn Randian, you know, he sprinkles uh, little uh, nuggets of Ayn Randian, Ayn Randian wisdom around the film like he, at one point Matthew McConaughey character says you know we used to look up into the into the into the stars and now we just put our heads down and look at the dirt you know definitely a, a sort of requiem for the uh, Ayn Rand great man theory of America you know he and in some sense the film is a falls into the um, make America great again category of films but the um, Dunkirk made me, you know, the fact that he didn't mention the Germans until deep into the film made me think that, uh, or draw the conclusion, which I think is true, that he, you know, he's a formalist. You know, he's like a film student going berserk. You know, his first film was a film told in reverse. As a formalist, you know, he's really not interested in overtly in politics and political context. Uh, and he, de- he dehistoricizes subjects. Like, in, again, in Interstellar, uh, there pl- seems to be a planet-wide drought. And instead of attributing it to human agency, he seems to, he seems to treat it as just one of those things that happens, you know. Um, and he, film talks about an excess of nitrogen in the air when, in fact, if it were um, global warming, it would be an excess of carbon dioxide in the air. And he's setting, he's, he's been quoted as saying in interviews that the film has no particular political message. And for me, that is the message of the film, mm-hmm. that it's, it's apolitical. And, um, and, 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 and by being apolitical and yet dealing with these subjects, it seems to me, it, it, you know, that that is the political message of the film, that, um, uh, that you know, that you know, the, the dangers of global warming are not a political subject. In fact, he's, he's, he seems puzzled, or his brother, at any rate, seems puzzled that, Amer- that people are so obsessed with global warming as if it's a subject for uh, social psychologists and not climatologists. It does seem interesting that we have so many, um, such a large population of climate change um, deniers in America, and yet... All we have um, in movies um, 
are the Earth dying by by volcano or by asteroid or you know um, whatever drought etc. It seems like even if we are rationally you know or, or sort of logically arguing you know climate change is 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 made up. It's just natural cycles of of the Earth etc. And yet we we're constantly watching these movies about the Earth dying and and we're entertained by that. Um, which seems to me like an interesting sort of unconscious paradox. Well, I mean, that's completely true. And, you know, it used to be that the Earth was the envy of the universe, you know, and there were all these movies in the 50s, science fiction films, where which was the golden age of science fiction, when uh, Earth was attacked by aliens from other planets, other galaxies, other universes, to exploit their natural resources. And now, as I say in the book, the traffic's going the other way. You have all these films in which Earth, you know, people from Earth, Earthlings, are traveling to other planets to exploit them. And Earth is dying. I mean, you know, you have things like, um, God, what is the name of that? Planet Nine? Is it that South African? Yeah, Planet Nine, uh, yeah. Yeah, where, you know, Earth is a, you know, the the, uh, the camera skims these you know, cities like Los Angeles and so forth, and you're just, Empty Husks, uh, or that second film he made, which I can't also can't remember the name of. All these films kind of blend together at some point. But, you know, the message is the same. Earth is dying. You know, Avatar, Earth is dying. You know, they're ex- off exploiting uh, a moon in a distant galaxy for quote-unquote unobtainium to take back to Earth to sell it. You know, the other function of these apocalypses and last end days movies is that these these disasters present extreme circumstances which justify extreme measures. And so it kind of plays into the general um, extremism, which is kind of attack these films like a tidal wave. Yeah, so that goes into something like Walking Dead, which is primarily, a you know, like a, a force wins. You have to do anything you can to survive, the sort of... Um, deeply selfish um, kind of worldview where there are these enemies, you're surrounded by by enemies and people that are trying to hurt you and so you just have to protect your family with the, you know, with a shotgun and, and whatever because somehow the entire world government just stopped existing when the, when the zombie apocalypse happened, which I find interesting. Well, except that I think I, think I would call... Um uh, the Walking Dead, a, a centrist series, uh, because I think, you know, it's sort of a laboratory for uh, trying on extreme measures for size, if you if you will, and then deciding that, oh, really, we have to pull back, you know, they're not going to work. I'm turning into the, um, the evil, uh, uh, the enemy that, I, that I'm fighting, you know, because again and again, uh, Rick, you know, who's the head of this little team of survivors is pushed further and further into the extremes in terms of extreme behavior. I mean, in one scene, uh, he's captured by a bunch of loudish, um, you know, human survivors. And he jumps on one of them and takes a big bite out of his neck. In other words, behaving like a zombie. And then later in that, in the series, you know, he uh, is remorseful for that kind of behavior and repudiates it. So, you know, I think The Walking Dead goes a far distance towards that kind of me first, anything goes behavior, but 
eventually it pulls back and, and it does it again and again and again. I mean, it's in its ninth season, I think. And one of the problems the show has, I think, is it keeps exploring the same films or the same uh, themes over and over again with the same outcome. But what I think also, speaking of The Walking Dead, which is what's interesting is that the humans in the show are just as bad as the zombies, if not worse. Uh, and they're more dangerous because at least they can still think and scheme, you know, and plot, whereas the zombies just, you know, trudge along. So to go back a bit to Christopher Nolan, I was sort of thinking about uh, um, his Batman films um, as being, you know, that was kind of the moment, right, where the the superhero movie became legitimate, like um, not just... Um, as entertainment but as art or to be considered as, as serious as a film um, and taken seriously by critics as well um, and yet those movies are so um, you know they're very pro surveillance state and they're very sort of like um, they're so political and so right wing um, that it's interesting that Christopher Nolan sort of claims a sort of uh, unpolitical stance because to me there are very much world government um, uh, you know the sort of conspiracies that you you hear on the on far right internet of uh, the new world order and the surveillance state and the and all that kind of stuff um, are very much present in in sort of in these Batman films. Well, yeah, I mean, it, I mean, Nolan is a really interesting example because he has this great reputation. You know, his films always, critics love him. Mm-hmm. And he's always, at whatever he puts out, uh, get good reviews, no matter how, I think, uh, flawed they are. But, I mean, and I think you have to acknowledge that he's a really extremely good craftsman. You know, he makes well-made movies, and, uh, which is, I think, one of the reasons for that his critical reputation is so high. But, you know, Batman and the Dark Knights are an interesting example. They're based on these, Frank, Frank Miller, you know, the comic book uh, illustrator, is extremely right-wing. The films are based on his comics. And, you know, theoretically, Batman also had a code, like the Western heroes had a code, which is he doesn't shoot anybody, he doesn't use a gun, and he, um, you know, essentially he's supposed to deliver, hit, capture the bad guys, and deliver them to the police for a fair trial, as people used to expect and expect in the old movies and TV shows. But the police are totally corrupt, for the most part, in, in the uh, Dark Nights. So Batman has to become um, a vigilante. And again, he, and he and essentially he breaks the code, although the, you know, that, he, that he's supposed to abide by, but the movies don't admit that, really. You know, he says at one point to, um, you know, um, you know, the villain, mm-hmm. not Bane, but the, um, you know, the uh, League of uh, League of whatever the hell it's called, uh, that, you know, Ragagool or whatever. Oh, whatever sure, the name yeah. Is. Anyway, he tells him, he tells him, uh, I can't kill you, but I certainly won't save you. And then he stands by and watches while the guy is actually killed. Uh, and doesn't lift a finger. And at one point, the Joker says, you know, the Joker points out that he's killed five people. And he says, even for me, that's a lot. You know, and, and in other words, the Joker is sort of uh, admires him 
for, um, you know, his lethal lethality, lethalness. So in that sense, you know, I think it is definitely a rival thing. The end of the movie, you know, the commissioner Gordon, who's the by the book police commissioner is training the, um, you know, his protege is the one, you know, the one honest cop has got detective Blake. And Batman also seems to be uh, using him as a protege to become, God knows what, the new Robin or something like that. So at the end of the, of the, of the last movie, Detective Blake has to choose between Commissioner Gordon to some, you know, and Batman, and Commissioner Gordon offers to promote him and, um, you know, uh, reward him for his upstanding service and obeying the law and so forth. But he actually decides to go with Batman. At the end of the film, he's walking through the Batcave to which he is the heir. So he prefers um, the, the role of the vigilante to the role of the cop. And, uh, you know, as far as the surveillance state goes, which you uh, pointed out, I'm not sure that the Dark Knights, you know, embrace that some because Batman is too much of a one-man show mm-hmm. and the and the cops and the police are too discredited I think for you know but I think the Marvel the Marvel comics the Marvel movies get into the surveillance state uh, more than uh, more than the Dark Knights do actually and I'm thinking of um, you know, I, honestly, all the Marvel films kind of meld into one for me. But I know me too. The cast, <laughs> I mean, I like, it's not like I don't like the good ones. You know, there are good ones and bad ones, and I don't agree that all these superhero movies are bad. They're certainly not. I mean, some of them are quite well written, and um, um, you know, and are very entertaining. Especially the uh, Iron Man movies with Robert Downey Jr., who's just a terrific actor. But in, the, in some of the Captain America movies, there's one scene uh, where it's a, a, either the head of S.H.I.E.L.D., Samuel Jackson, what is it called, Nick Fury, proposes basically a sur- surveillance state where they try to predict who's going to break the law before they do it. And Captain America is outraged and says, aren't you supposed to wait until a crime is committed before you, um, you know, put somebody in jail? And I think those issues are, are raised and actually debated uh, more in the um, in the Marvel s- series, which are, I think, kind of much more left-wing than the uh, Dark Knights, which I think are much more right-wing. So how did we get to this place where so much of our entertainment is dominated by superheroes? I mean, now that Netflix has these sort of constantly running Marvel shows and the CW is constantly running new um, new superhero television shows and the new movie, like with the, the crossover Marvel thing, it's like every nine months we get a new one. Um, right. I mean, so you talk in the book about the sort of market forces um, that created that environment, um, but also like how how did the sort of audience grow for that? Like, how did that become the story that we all wanted to hear? I guess. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, it is. You know, I think the market does take a big share of the blame because. Uh, you know the the, you know, the international market is much more is, is outweighed. It's much more important, much more lucrative than the domestic market for Hollywood movies now. So you know, especially China, which is supposed to become the biggest 
market of, of all in 2000, predicted in 2020. And clearly, uh, action travels best. And, you know, shows that are character-driven or script-driven don't, don't um, carry as well, don't travel as well. So that the kinds of movies that Hollywood would make, the sort of mid-level movies, they just, they just don't make anymore. And, uh, you know, they'd rather spend $250 million on a big, you know, uh, superhero spectacular than spend $60 million or $50 million on a sort of medium budget uh, movie about actual human beings. Why the why those films have become so popular, you know, I think, you know, it's certainly serving a younger audience. I think adults of, you know, older people, you know, baby boomers in particular, but certainly a couple of generations below them have abandoned Hollywood movies for, um, you know, for Netflix and for Amazon Prime. I certainly have, you know, I mean, I, I go to see them occasionally, but mostly I was going because I was writing this book. And now that I don't have to, yeah, my book is finished. I don't have to go anymore. <laughs> but um, and you know, I certainly can't deny that I enjoyed some of them. And as I said, some you know, some of the, especially the Iron Man movies are, you know, very are very well done, and the scripts are good. Uh, and they're and you know, because they pay, you know, they pay well, and they attract talent. You know, and some of these actors, great actors like Robert Downey Jr., you know, and um, Scarlett Johansson. We should be making more human movies, you know, or wasting their time making movies like, like, um, you know, like the Avengers. So I don't know. It's hard to answer. I mean, it's a, the question you asked is why they're so popular. Um, you know, it's a hard question to answer. I mean, I think it's a, it's a partly a demographic issue, but I don't know really. I mean, do you, do you have any theories? Um, <laughs> I have theories. I don't know if they're valid. <laughs> I'd like um, to turn the question back. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think because we have such like an individualistic culture that we that we want to believe that we're all very special in a secret way. Um, and so that these movies kind of feed into that, this idea that we're deeply special um, and that if just everybody knew, like if I could just put on a cape and... <laughs> and just show everybody there's a sort of element of that but also that it does seem to have like this kind of Ayn Randian because of my specialness um I ultimately get to do whatever I want um including you know collateral damage by you know if I'm saving the world and I and a building just happens to fall down in the in the course of that then it's all it's all fine I think well, do you think you know, that there's an element of that I think you're right about that. I mean, and it reminds me of, you know, of Spielberg films, which, which Spielberg really pioneered some of this. And I always felt that Spielberg kind of infantilized his audience. You know, I mean, his films, you know, used to be, you know, they were based on those um, serials from the 30s, the white hat and black hat serials from the 30s. And the audience for those were kids. You know, and I think there's a whole element of nostalgia in these movies, especially in Spielberg's, which try, you know, to essentially to appeal to the childlike in their audiences and infantilize their audiences. And I think that these superhero movies do the same thing. They appeal to, um, you know, kind of infantile fantasies of omnipotence. 
and which is basically what you're saying. And then there's a sort of um, the fan culture around these movies, um, which does seem to be, um, I th- you know, I think it's interesting that um, the alt-right in a lot of ways was sort of formulated in um, sort of video game forums <laughs> and video game culture. Um, and the sort of the beginning of... Um, film critics receiving death threats if they gave a negative review to a superhero film that they really liked. I sort of remember the A.O. Scott um, response when one of the Marvel movies, I can't remember which one it was, the sort of violent emails that he was getting because he dared to say that it wasn't a very good movie. Um, I mean, that seems like a a sort of direct illustration of what you're talking about in the book of like this kind of um, um, taking the the culture the culture having this this very direct um impact on the sort of political um i mean a lot of those gamergate people are now trump supporters and a lot of the um the the hardcore geeks are trump supporters in the same way of like admiring a superhero who does whatever he wants admiring donald trump because he does whatever he wants kind of kind of thing well i think that's absolutely right and and you know i think that the one of the keys to the whole influence of gaming on these movies and TV shows is that winning is the, is the goal of the games, you know, and winning at any cost. And that's what certainly what Trump seems to believe. And, you know, these recent uh, revelations about Manafort, the degree to which he uh, went in his lobbying efforts for his clients in uh, his, Russian slash Ukrainian clients uh, planting phony rumors and, you know, really doing, going deep into the dirty trick, uh, you know, darkness. Uh, And certainly uh, that applies to Trump as well. Uh, And it's very, very, um, you know, it's totally consonant with the ethos of some of these, um, some of the video games. So I think that's a good point, which I never thought of myself. (laughs) But um, you're absolutely right. Not that I'm, well, I'm not sure what I'm trying to ask, but do you see like sort of, I, I look at sort of film criticism and they're sort of treating, for the most part, film critics just treat movies as entertainment. They're just sort of talking about whether the movie works, if it's good. They don't sort of talk about the sort of larger cultural issues unless it's about sort of representation, right? About, um the sort of identity politics thing of how are the how are the women treated in the movie how are the the characters of color treated in the movie that sort of thing but the sort of more political ideas underneath that kind of get ignored i guess this this book sort of made me wish for a more robust uh, film criticism culture well i th- i think that's both true and and sort of not true I mean, I think you're, I think it's, you're basically correct, but the thing that, that struck me was that, uh, you know, this, this book is kind of a sequel to the first book I ever wrote, which was published in 1983 called Seeing is Believing, in which I argued that, um, you know, that, uh, it's about Hollywood movies of the fifties in which I argued that all kinds of movies like science fiction movies and Westerns and horror movies and so forth that were um, on the surface, on the face of it, innocent of politics, 
carried political ideas, political um, ideas, you know, and carried ideology. And um, at that time, that was sort of a, a it wasn't indeed a minority uh, view. And um, but I think since then, you know, with the rise of groups like Accuracy and Media on the right and Media Matters on the left, which were devoted to seeing uh, movies and TV from a political point of view, and even to the extent of, you know, boycotting them, you know, calling for boycotts of ticket lines in front of uh, theaters playing movies, which these, you know, the, le the left or the right didn't like. Um, I think there's been much more awareness of the fact that uh, movies carry, movies and TV carry political ideas and, uh, uh, and, and almost, to, almost to a ridiculous degree, in other words, Accuracy in media, I believe, or at least the right, attacked you know a lot of a lot of the Sesame Street stuff and uh, SpongeBob SquarePants and you know so it seemed some some at some points that they were looking at the politics more closely than they were looking at the film or the TV show itself. So, but I think you're also right about you know that it's more so in the area of representation. And how women, minorities, et cetera, gays, you know, uh, are treated in the films as opposed to uh, what I guess you could call the bigger picture. Uh, it would be nice if, if uh, critics were, and, and of course, not all, I mean, I think the New York Times um, review, the two reviewers in the New York Times are very conscious of the politics of movie, movies and the big picture. And, uh, I think that's completely changed if you start reading, uh, if you start looking at reviews from the 50s and even the 60s, you really find that, you know, uh, if you look at, you know, what they're interested in, I know that, uh, because I've written a lot about Bonnie and Clyde, Bossy Crowther, who was the lead reviewer of the New York Times for generations, you know, was in sense of the violence of the movie and then they go after stuff like that rather than the, the general, it seemed like he was more disturbed by the violence of the movie and the fact that the movie treated the sheriff as the villain and, and bank robbers <laughs> and killers with heroes. It was the violence that upset him, not the, um, you know, not the ideology of the picture so much. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.